So if you'll allow me to set the stage for you for where we're going to go. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ezra. Ezra. I'm going to turn our attention to a time in God's redemptive history where the things seem very dark, and they had been very dark for God's people, the Jews. Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of God, has been burned. The temple of Solomon, with all of its splendor and all of its wonder, the very dwelling place of God, the God of all the ages, has been destroyed. It's been torn down. The foundations have been laid bare. It's just simply not there anymore. The Ark of the Covenant is missing. And with it is the, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and, and the budding rod of Aaron, and the manna from heaven, missing. Gone is the mercy seat, the place of atonement where the high priest would come in every year and, and pour out the blood of the sacrificial lamb in order to appease a holy God of his anger over the sins and iniquities and transgressions of the people. There have been prophets that have come before to give warnings. Jeremiah was the most recent one to warn Israel and the people repeatedly. If you do not change your ways, if you don't turn from your adulteries with foreign gods, if you continue to worship your own bellies and satisfy the lusts of your own flesh, if you continue to exchange the glory of God for images to satisfy the, 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 the lust of the eyes, if you continue to exalt your way above my word to satisfy the pride of life, then he's told them, I'm going I'm to destroy my own house. And I will, I will empty out the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will send you all into exile, into captivity. That was the warning that came from the prophets and that is exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. He burned the city and he enslaved the people. And in doing all of that, in destroying God's house and burning down God's city and enslaving God's people, the book of Jeremiah calls him the servant of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar was a tool of God to execute his righteous judgment against a wicked and perverted generation. But the story doesn't stop there because God does not give judgment without giving hope. Amen. That's the God that we serve. That's the parent we all ought to be. While they were in exile, the Lord sent prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel to deliver a message of hope. And it's in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, that we see that beautiful promise that God will take their heart of stone and give them a heart of of flesh and caused them to follow after his statutes. And that is the situation. That, that is the stage that is set for what happens in Ezra. We get to Ezra chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, be sure you turn there or turn your Bibles on, whatever works for you. Um, and while you're doing that, I want to offer a prayer. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Your word is precious. It is holy. And I pray that you give us the grace to receive it with joy and gladness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. So let's read the scripture, Ezra chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of King Cyrus, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And here's what he said. Verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, 
The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever among you of all of his people, may God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides freewill offerings of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So, the temple of God has been destroyed. The people have been in bondage and exile for over a generation. And now, all of a sudden, the king of Persia, which is arguably the most powerful nation in the world at that time, he issues a decree. And the effect of his decree, what it effectively says is, go, rebuild the house of God, reopen the doors of the temple. Now, I'd like you to flip over a page or so and look at chapter 3 of Ezra. Ezra chapter 3, flip over a page or scroll, verse 8. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, so they had come out of captivity, uh, a first wave of them, and they have come to Jerusalem where the house of God once stood. In the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. Skip down to verse 10. And the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. The priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But, Many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So, for some people, this was a joyful and jubilant occasion. The foundations of the house of the Lord have been laid. The temple is being rebuilt. The Lord is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. Amen. These were the young ones. These were the, the people who never knew the splendor of that first temple. This had been over a generation ago. Amen. They never saw the splendor of that first Amen. temple. They had no reference for how good things used to be. So they looked upon the foundation of this new temple and they shouted for joy, the Bible says, with all their might. Amen. But there were older ones there who remembered the good old days. They remembered the great temple and the house of the Lord. The God of the ages dwelt here. 
The glory of the Lord shone from here. We could see it in the pillar of smoke above the temple. Fire came out of the Holy of Holies to light the altar. This is where that happened. I remember that. I remember the stories. I've seen the building. I've walked on those, those, those pavement stones. I've touched the gold in the walls and it was grand. They remembered the great temple. Listen, Solomon's temple was an astonishing sight in its day. In fact, with all the materials that went into building Solomon's temple, all the stone and the gold and the silver and the fabrics and the wood and the carvings, if you were to try to build that structure today, with, even with all of our modern technologies, do you know how much it cost? The materials alone would cost over $140 billion. That's with a B. Thousands and thousands of pounds of gold. Thousands, and you know how much gold goes for an ounce these days? It's crazy. $140 billion. To give you a little perspective, just from a, a standpoint of materials, think about the structure of the Cowboy Stadium in Arlington. That thing is massive. And all the technology that goes into it. They got the big screen, they got the roof. That come, I mean, it's a, a phenomenal structure. Building that thing costs $1.2 billion. Just to give you some perspective, the temple of Solomon was an awesome sight. So awesome that leaders came from all around the known world just to gaze at it. Just to see this wonderful structure. I can't believe what I'm seeing. Wealthy leaders came because they heard of the great wealth of Israel stored in this house. Solomon's temple was built at the height of Israel's prosperity and no expense was spared. Leaders came, like I said, from everywhere just to see it. And so now well, here we are 70 years after the temple has been destroyed, after Jerusalem has been burned, and they're trying to rebuild it. But the circumstances are very different. Amen. They're building it in poverty. They don't have near the resources that were available for the first temple. The foundation stones themselves, oh yeah, they laid the foundation. And the foundation was the same size as the other foundation. But the stones themselves were so much smaller. They weren't, the, the foundation stones weren't as grand as what they remember. And so those who remembered the first temple and the grand nature of the first temple... They are weeping in sorrow. How do I know that these are tears of sorrow and not tears of joy? Well, there's some discussion about that. Well, what makes you think they're, they're tears of sorrow and not tears of joy? Everybody else was rejoicing. Why do you think they weren't rejoicing? And just so overcome with, with emotion that they were crying. Well, look at what the language says. Read the scripture. The scripture says that they wept how? With a loud voice. They wept with a loud voice. A voice that was so loud with their weeping that they couldn't distinguish the weeping voice from the rejoicing voice, the shouts of joy. Church, tears of joy aren't expressed that way. When's the last time you saw someone wailing for joy? They don't, they don't go together. Someone is overwhelmed with emotion, with joy. They may, that may bring tears to their eyes, but they're not wailing. They're not weeping loudly. 
Weeping loudly comes from overwhelming grief and sorrow. These people are, that's why they call it the wailing wall in Jerusalem. They go and they weep in sorrow. They wail in grief over their own sin and the sins of the world. These people were sad at what they saw. This was not the temple they remembered. And this was not the temple they expected either. So, they've had these prophecies, you see, from Ezekiel and and Daniel and Haggai and others about a new temple. A temple whose glory would far surpass the first temple. And there's no possible way. They can look at the foundation stones, they can look at the resources that they have, and they know there is no possible way that we can surpass the glory of the first temple with what we've got going on here. We can never measure up to that former glory. And so there were very mixed emotions that day. Some were overcome with joy because a building was being built, and some were deeply sorrowful because it was not the temple they remembered, neither was it the temple they expected. Church, I don't, I don't know if you can see the clear picture here in light of what's going on in our country and around the world for the last couple of months, but it seems to me like we could almost place ourselves right in the middle of what's going on here in Amen. Ezra. Amen, brother. Yes, sir. Now, you know, we haven't been in exile for 70 years, but our doors have been closed. Congregations around the country were told that they could not gather. In this state, anyway, in Texas, we were advised not to gather. And in our situation, we, we uh, voluntarily shut the doors in order to be good watchmen of the house and try to protect those that we love. A voluntary exile, but an exile from the house of the Lord nonetheless. Amen. We've been dealing with uncertainty. All of us have uncertainty and, and mixed information and misinformation. Conflicting rules and contradictions in the guidelines and best practices. Is this thing really as deadly as they say it is? No, it's not. Yes, it is. The world's going to end. No, it's not. It's all a lie. No, it's not. I mean, so much conflicting information. And please, hear me when I say this. I say this for your good. If you're getting your news from Facebook and social media, you're getting it from the wrong spot. All right? Half of what is put out there as the gospel truth as the news, as the, the true news, is a lie. It's a flat-out lie. I'm just, I admonish you as people of God to use wisdom and due diligence and do checking. Check the stuff before you share it, all right? Amen. Check it, because half of it's a lie, and it's probably more than half of it. Use sound judgment and discernment. But that, that feeds into the confusion and the uncertainty that we face, because no one knows what to believe. So we've been in this time of extreme uncertainty and exile, and then, two days ago, the President of the United States, which is unquestionably the most powerful nation in the world at our time, issues a statement that declares all churches to be essential, and he calls on every governor in every state to open the doors of the church. Do you see the parallel? Is God rewriting history? So in churches all across the country, people are gathering today for the first time for some of them in months. And there are mixed emotions. I can promise you this because I know it in my own circle of friends. There are mixed emotions about this. Some are joyful 
that we are able to gather. I'm joyful. I can see it on your faces. Many of you are joyful that we are here. And there are some that are fearful. They're fearful. And I get it. They're fearful. Some are sorrowful. So joy, I understand. I was glad when they said to me, let's go into the house of the Lord. And I really am. I'm glad to be here. And, and fearful, I, I get it. I understand why people would be afraid to gather, especially with some of the information that's been put out there. And, and especially with the uncertainty and not knowing what to believe. I get it. People are afraid. What I don't get is being afraid to come to church, but we're not afraid to go to Home Depot or Walmart or hang out at the lake or do... That, I don't understand that, but I do understand a genuine fear of getting out in public. Listen, since my stroke, that puts me in a high-risk category. This thing that, as we understand it, causes blood clots. Well, that's what causes a stroke. So, I, don't you, don't, don't, I mean, listen, I am very careful about getting around people anymore. The wife does all the running for us. Why? Because I can look out here and half of you may be carrying this thing and not even know it. That's, what, that's what's so frightening about it. It's such an unknown. But are we people of fear or are we people of faith? I will not let my fear overcome my trust in the Lord. The wise man considers the steadfast love of the Lord. And I do not know why God would not honor us in doing what is right and just and good and gathering to worship while at the same time exercising wisdom and, and taking precautions. That's wise. We're not tempting fate with that. We're not, we're not being cavalier with God's promises. So I, I, get, I get the fear. But there are some that are sorrowful as well. So I understand the joy. I understand the fear. Why would you be sad about church opening back up? Well, look around you. Look at me. I'm going to admit to you, I'm as happy as a lark to be here. I'm as happy as I can be to be having church with you today. But there's a big part of me, a big part of my heart that is sad. Even sorrowful. Because this is not church like I remember it. This is not church like I expect it. And if this is our new normal, coverings on our face and having to sit six feet away and, and two rows apart, and not shaking anybody's hands and not hugging anybody, if this is our new normal, how will we ever achieve our formal glory? Here's the thing. Let me take you back to Ezra. See, God never intended them to go back to a former glory. What God intended for them was a surpassing new glory. Yes. See, they, they all got it wrong. All of them, those who were rejoicing and those who were weeping, they all got it wrong. The ones who were rejoicing were doing so because of a building. They saw foundations being laid and they said, yes, our redemption is near. Our salvation is near because the building is being rebuilt. How do I know they're rejoicing in the building? Read the rest of the book. They were praising God with their lips and they were far from him with their hearts. Their hope was in a structure and a system that they could build. Amen. 
And they rejoiced over the systems and the structures, not the God of the system and the God that dwelt in the structure. The ones that were weeping, they were weeping because of a building. Brother Jeff, how do you know that? This building will never match the glory of the former building. And I know it was they were weeping because of the building and the glory of the building itself. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we see the child, the grandson of Eli being born. And what do they name him? Ichabod. And it means the glory has departed. The glory of God had left the temple long before these men were ever born. They weren't weeping over the presence of God being gone. They were weeping over the splendor of the temple, the gold and the silver and the accoutrements and the comforts. How will we ever achieve that kind of glory? And God would say, that's not the kind of glory I had in mind for you ever. The presence of God left the temple, and so they're weeping over gold. They all missed it. And church, if we're not careful, we'll miss it too. Let me try to tie something together for you. The life, the life of worship in ancient Israel was centered around the temple. Worship happened at the temple. You might say that the temple was the heart of their worship. And the sacrificial system was the heartbeat of their worship. The temple was destroyed, and God said he would give them a new temple. But they thought he meant a building. The second inferior temple, the one that they laid the foundations for, that some rejoiced over and some wept over, that second temple was a grand building. It stood for over 500 years. And one day, the young virgin brought her child to that temple so that she could make a sacrifice that mothers have to make the 40th day after giving birth. And the priest of the temple, Simeon, recognized this young child as the Messiah, the one who would save all the world. Twelve years later, this same young boy would stand in this temple and he would bewilder the scribes and, and the wise men because of his knowledge of the scripture and his teachings of the word. 21 years after that, this same boy, now become a man who has declared himself to be the son of the living God, will begin the process of cleansing that secondary, inferior temple. And he would go to a cross and die and shed his blood for the sins of the world that we all might be cleansed. On that day when he died, the ground shook and the temple shook and the veil was split in the Holy of Holies. It's as if God was saying, it ain't about this place anymore. Do you remember the promise in Ezekiel chapter 36? I blew right past it this morning because if we're not careful, we'll blow right past it. He said, I will give you a heart of flesh. I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He took away that heart of stone, that inferior temple. It was destroyed too. And he gave them a heart of flesh, his only son, our Lord. I don't think God wants us to ever go back to the way things were. We were too comfortable, too cavalier about the house of God, too cavalier about church attendance, 
and, and, and uh, life in covenant with one another. We become stagnant in our pursuit of holiness and we find joy in lesser things. We become deaf and blind to the lost in our own communities. They don't look like us. They don't smell like us. They don't act like us. They don't live like us. So we turn our eyes against them. We turn our ears away from them and we ignore them as if they're not there. And this is not just happening in Paris. It happens all over the world in churches all across the country, all across the world. And God said with one loud voice across every nation, Wake up! You fell asleep and I had to shake you to wake you up. Church, I don't know about you. I don't know about you, but this short exile that we've been in has been long enough for me. It has been long enough to open my eyes and change my opinion about some things. It's been long enough to get my head in the book and seek the Lord for his guidance. What am I doing wrong? I told my wife the other day that my biggest prayer for this time that we've had that is downtime is that I would not face the Lord one day and him look at me and say, what did you do with the time that I gave you? Oh, I got a whole message on that because all of you are older and most of you are retirement age. There is no retirement in the body of Christ. But that's for another day. What did you do with the time I gave you? There are so many things for us to rejoice over. There are so many things for us to get right. Church, I don't know about you, but like I said, I'm, I'm done with this exile. Cyrus the king has declared churches essential. He's given us permission and resources to reopen our doors. It's not supposed to be church like you remember it. Because church like you remember it wasn't cutting it. And it may not be church like you ever expected it. You've got to raise your expectations. You've got to get so set in, in hope in something higher and better, a more surpassing glory, a heavier glory. There are church leaders and teachers and deacons and elders and pastors and preachers in churches all across the world who are more concerned about their buildings and their lawns than they are about the souls of their people. We have, if if, we may have to sit six feet apart for the rest of our lives, we may have to wear coverings on our faces for the rest of of our lives. We don't know when the end of this is going to be. It may sound different and look different for a long time. Paul said, I have learned that whatever state I'm in, therewith to be content. I can worship with my mask on. I can worship six inches apart or six feet apart or six miles apart. It doesn't matter because my God is real. He took away my heart of stone and he gave me a heart of worship. He said, it ain't about this building anymore. It's about my son who died for you. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. That is the temple of worship. Jesus Christ. And I will praise him come what may. Jesus told the woman at the well, you're worried about a place, but the hour is coming and now is when those who worship God must worship him in spirit. You're worried about a place. But there's going to be a time when you don't have a place. You have to worship God 
in spirit. That's pneuma. We did a study on that not too long ago. That the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, that's pneuma, the breath. It's the same breath that God breathed into Adam and gave him life. You must worship him in spirit. What am I saying? Spirit is life. Amen. Your lifestyle is worship. Worship is your lifestyle. It's not a time of the week. It's not a day of the week. It's not a place that you go. It is a way that you live. The spirit, you must worship him with your life. It's a way of life. But he didn't stop there. He said you must worship him in spirit. That's life. And in truth. Jesus said I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one goes to the Father but through me. Church, so many people are trying to get to God through the building. They're trying to get to God through the programs. That's why we think that the bigger the building, the grander the building, and the more flashy the program, the better my chances are of finding God in it. But that's a heart of stone. And Jesus gave us a new heart for worship. He gave us himself, a heart of flesh that beats for the glory of God alone. Not for traditions, not for systems, not for structures, not for cultures, not for governments. Not for nations or places or things, but for the glory of God alone. All of life to the glory of God. When we rejoice, let us rejoice for the right reasons. When we weep, let us weep for the right reasons. Rejoice because Christ is on his throne. God is king and he is in control and he is good. He is good to us and his steadfast love endures forever. When we weep, let us weep over our own sin. Let us weep over the lost and the persecuted. As long as Christ is king, and it's not about buildings or programs or structures or systems, but it's all about Jesus. It's about loving him with everything we've got and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Then we have every reason to rejoice. No matter what state, what condition we find ourselves in, even if this is the new normal, guys, even if we have to wear a mask and stay six feet apart the rest of our lives, our heart of stone has been traded for a heart of flesh, and it beats to rejoice in our God. And I would end with this and ask the singers to come. Truly, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us then rejoice and be glad in it.